Hello, Washington, D.C. Jewish Community Center. All right. Uh, and welcome to a special live studio audience taping of Unorthodox, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. I am Mark Oppenheimer, and it's great to be here in our nation's capital, or as we're soon to be calling it, Trump Towers. Uh, I am... I am j- it's in our hands, people. It's in our hands. I am joined tonight, as ever, by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnett. Hi. Hi. Oh, thank you. And, have, and Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Shalom, shalom. Uh, later in the show, we will have some music from our Jubador, Jim Nabel. Yeah. And we'll be joined by guest Jew food writer, Joan Nathan. Uh, guest Gentile writer Elizabeth Stokes Brunig. And maybe even another guest or so. So, Hanukkah just ended. Uh, do you guys have a good Hanukkah? Yeah. yeah? Did you Not have... that many presents, I have to say. So, when you're living with your boyfriend, do you guys do you light the candles? We did. You did? Were there presents? I didn't realize I'd be sharing so much about my personal life. But yeah, yeah there were no presents, but there were candles. There were candles. Mark, and the cat like kind of swats at them. <laughs> you have the worst cat in the world. I do. Right? I do. love him. Do. Mark, you have four girls. Four daughters. Where do you keep four Where gifts do we keep the daughters? eight nights? <laughs> well, that's a different question. He doesn't in live the in New York City. We already know fine. this one. But we, have dr- we have drawers for them. <laughs> Where do you keep all those presents? Uh, we have walk-in closets. That we what, have, we, what's that? What's that? Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know about, like, the way I don't know what Snapchat is, you don't know what walk-in closets are, because we're, we're at different... They don't sta- even exist anymore. We're at different stages of life. Uh, we, we put them up high. Where do you keep the presents for your two kids? Two is manageable, I feel. Like, you just stick them under the bed, and it's fine. But four kids time eight, that's 32 gifts. My kids were terrible this Hanukkah. Like, by night six, they were really demanding, you know, this night's present wasn't as good as last night. It was really... It was, it was, they were horrible. Well, the key is, I think, to mess with them. You give them great gifts the first two nights, you build expectation, then you give them something totally, like, lame. And they're like, okay, how's this working? And then on the fourth night, a great gift again. And then they're like prisoners in, like, an Iranian jail. They don't know what time it is. They're totally disoriented. And then 20 years from now, they're, like, in therapy being like, exactly. it was that one Hanukkah where, Those like, gifts, the second night was The bad. stickers, but then the light bright. I don't know. It's great. So I actually, the best thing that happened to me was we were driving with our kids from New Haven to New York to um, my niece's Hanukkah party on the Upper West Side. So we're, do- we're going down the Henry Hutch and, and the Merritt doing that drive. And uh, this was last weekend. And um, we start seeing all these, tr- these cars with trees on top of them. And one of my daughters said, <laughs> I think it was Ellie, I think it was our seven-year-old, said, Daddy, why are there trees on cars? <laughs> to her, this was like, you know, this was, a, this was a Pixar movie. Like, there are trees growing on cars. And I said, well, sweetie, I think those are, those are Christmas trees on top of cars. And she said, well, don't they belong in a house? And I said, well, yes, but you have to buy them somewhere and bring them to the house. And this blew her mind, because I think she thought that Christians had magical trees that grew out through their floors into... I don't think she realized they had to be purchased. And I said, Ellie, they're, they're bringing the trees to the house. And she said... So you mean that every time I see a tree on top of a van, there's a Christian in the car? <laughs> and I said, yes, that's exactly right. So then she, she, she like elbows Clara in the other car seat, who's five, and Rebecca's in her booster, she, she's eight, and she says, Rebecca, Clara, there are Christians in all of those cars. <laughs> And then the whole rest of the drive, you know, the whole rest of the 80 miles, every time they saw a tree on a car, they said, look, Christians. <laughs> so now I just, I, but the funny thing is, I haven't broken to them that 
every time we're on the highway, there are Christians everywhere. <laughs> They're surrounded by, there's just Christians and everywhere. sometimes you don't know to spot them. Like, they don't yeah. have the tree. They don't have the tree, so how do you know if they're Christians? My good, my good friend Daniel wants to write a book uh, called Goyim, A History of the Rest of the World. This would really help them, I think, figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, that, that, was, that was the best thing that happened to us. Uh, you know, the Jews, the Jews didn't take the Hanukkah season off. They kept making news. Can you believe that? Yeah. What I are mean, the odds? Eight days. For example, in the news of the Jews this week, um, Mr. Universe, the new, the new Mr. Universe is a Jewish bodybuilder, an Israeli bodybuilder named Dani Kaganovic. She's 23. He became the first ever Israeli to win best overall body in the Mr. Universe competition, held naturally in Hamburg, which is where, you know, Jews go to win gold medals. And I mean, I see this, and of course, I, as I've said before on the podcast, it, I loathe nothing if not beauty pageants. And this is sort of male muscle Beauty patch. Is this good for the Jews? How do we feel about the Danny Kaganovich bringing home the Mr. Universe belt? I mean, I think it does a lot to like break these stereotypes of like Ashkenazi men, like the Woody Allen, Philip Roth thing. But then I looked up a picture of him and he's like wearing glasses, but he has like the big muscles. But I'm like, do you keep your glasses on for the picture? Like, what? What are you doing? How amazing was the interview portion of the competition? Probably he's like, what's your favorite book? It's like, eh, I really love the Portnoy Complaint. <laughs> I, I read in the gym. I also very much like Annie Hall. Very funny. Very funny movie. Now, as an IDF veteran, Leo, do you, think, do you want a guy who looks no. like that in the army with you? First of all, a guy like that's a pretty easy target. <laughs> you don't want like, someone who's like eight bulky. feet wide. <laughs> Plus, like, here's the thing. like The whole kind of original Zionist vision of the muscular Jews, like Jews who could pick up a gun and fight, not Jews who could do, you know, this <laughs> with, with their muscles and, and like, like prance around and like G-strings. Like that is totally counterintuitive. Can you walk around in a G-string and like the Gaza Strip being like, and now I will demonstrate my calves. Yeah, that's totally inept. I don't, I don't like that. Um, Star Wars. Episode 17 opens Thursday. Mock all um, you want. And I, I'm, as somebody who's not unlike some of my best friends, unlike my brother, not part of the sci-fi community. <laughs> this is actually uninteresting to me. I thought, I thought it was Mark Hamill's best work. I'll grant you that. Uh, can anyone name any other Mark Hamill work, by the, the way? Joker, the Joker and, and the Batman. Thank you. Oh. And the video games. Thank Perhaps you Perhaps you guys can that. play video games with no girls around later. <laughs> and I'm loving this. Credit. This guy just won. Yeah, really great. <laughs> All right, before we descend into Comic Con, um, so, so Leo, I'm out. what? I'm out. You're out. Yeah, I'm out with you. Okay, we'll go. Let's go watch some HBO. So, are you going to see the new Star Wars, Leo? I have tickets for Thursday at 7 p.m. For Friday at 10 p.m. <laughs> and two tickets for Sunday, which I may or may not use depending on how good or shitty this movie is. <laughs> Probably Who goes horrible. with you to these movies? Uh, my wife for the first. <laughs> Unclear. Do the kids go? No, no, no. The kids would be terrified. The kids what? thought Minions was scary. So, you know. Okay, those guys are kind of creepy. Yeah. What, what is your sci-fi slash fantasy acculturation training for Lillian Hudson? Like, do you feel it's important to, to welcome them into so the cult? So this is amazing. They have never seen Star Wars, but they know everything about Star Wars. And, and we name, you know, the different planets in Star Wars. And, you know, where are the Ewoks from? Andor. 
Um, and so Lily, who's four, had a uh, unit in her school about, you know, just the stars. And they teach them, like, Neptune and Pluto and Mars. And the teacher asks, like, can you name any other stars? And Lily's like, Endor! <laughs> and the teacher's like, I'm not sure, you know, how to proceed now. I'm not going to tell you Ewoks aren't real. It'll just break your heart. Uh, a few episodes ago, we had the crazy idea that we would present some of our listeners' mail in the form of a song. And we called on our friend Jim Nabel, spelled Knabel, uh, a playwright from New York, uh, lead singer-songwriter of the Randy Bandits, semi-Semite. <laughs> we asked him to turn some of our listener mail into a song, and we touched something very, very deep in Jim. Like, like there. Oh, like, that hurts. Really deep in Jim. Uh, something deep in his half-Jewish soul, his neshama, and he just kept writing songs for us. I mean, he, just, he just won't stop. He keeps sending I'm, us songs. I'm still learning. Is neshama something related to soul? Very related. It means soul. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he keeps writing songs. So um, he actually wrote one for this week's episode that has never been heard outside of our uh, email chain. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's sort of the ballad of the man we've christened the Jubador. And we invite Jim Nabel to sing it for you now. He rode into town on a brass and bronze menorah. <laughs> Hoping for to find a six-point star He thought he heard the sound of a distant horror <laughs> It turned out it was just a whiskey bar Well, he walked in and said, please give me a Manischewitz The barkeep said, we just serve whiskey here He sat down with some ladies for the kibitz those hookers looked him up and down with fear. He's a jubador riding through the country, looking for a place to hang his kipper without fear. Everywhere that he explores, he finds wanting. No one seems to want the jubador here. No one seems to want the jubador here. Well, he met a girl, her name was Buxom Mabel. He said, my dear, do you speak Hebrew too? She said, what is Hebrew? He said, here's my dreidel. She said, no thanks, I just coochie-coo. He's a jubador riding through the country for a place to hang his kipper without fear Everywhere that he explores he finds wanting No one seems to want the Jubador here No one seems to want the Jubador here In his dream he settles down and he is happy He's the only rabbi in the neighborhood not that he is really trained to be a rabbi But no one knows the difference, so he could <laughs> Well, they like to gather around after a good hanging Hear his tale of old world shtetl ways It gets lonesome, but it's nice that they're remaining 
what else can a Jubador expect in these lonesome going days? He's a Jubador riding through the country, looking for a place to hang his kipper without fear. And everywhere that he explores, he finds wanting. No one seems to want the Jubador here. Everybody. No one seems to want the Jubilee. That was that was so sad. It was. Can I just say, not only did we unlock something <laughs> Jewish and Jinsel, we unlocked like the part with like the persecution and the misery. You know? He automatically gets it. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's deep. It's profound. It's hardwired. So. Um, Jim has agreed to, to take the, the unorthodox challenge of writing a song based on your suggestions. So d- we, we'd like a topic. We'd like a few people to suggest some topics for a song that Jim will write in the next 25 minutes or so, half an hour, or he won't and he'll play something else, but he's going to try. And we need, we, so Alyssa's going to go find some, some people to suggest some topics. Really obnoxious Knesset debates. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Debates in the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. The relative merits of Kugel versus brisket. <laughs> okay, Kugel versus brisket. Something yep. about gefilte fish. Yes. Ge- gefilte fish. Hillary. Okay. Did you say Hillary? Hillary and gefilte fish. What about her and gefilte Did I miss that? Hillary yes, Clinton. you did miss that. Sorry, I, oh. I don't read the papers. Shabbat shalom yoga. Shabbat shalom yoga? All okay. Right. Okay, interesting. Oh. Benjamin Netanyahu's dog. Oh, that's fantastic. Does he have a dog? dog Not only he has a dog, the dog bit a a fellow member of Knesset and had to be sent to a concentration doggy camp. No. Yeah, for a week. It was very sad for the Netanyahu. The the Netanyahu? The Netanyahu. The dog's name is Kaya. She's very adorable. And I will say, uh, in their favor, no matter what else you think about them, they adopted a 10-year-old dog. Which is really lovely. Actually, I, that I love is them really now. nice. Yeah. I totally love them now. As someone, everything two, else is forgiven. <laughs> with two rescue dogs, I totally love love them one now. Last one. Yeah, birthright Israel. Birthright yeah. Israel. Israel. So do you Fantastic. have enough? Jim Jim Nabel, do you have Jim, enough options? Jim, you can options? mix all of them. I, I I have more than enough options. More than enough I, options. All right. So thanks. Let's give him another round of applause. <laughs> Our Jewish guest this week is a frequent contributor to Tablet and one of the most famous names in Jewish food writing, which is a larger field than you might think, insofar as Jews write and they eat and they like to combine the two wherever possible. She's local. She lives here in Washington, D.C., and her name is Joan Nathan. Please welcome Joan Nathan. This is new for me. What's so, new for you? This whole thing. Talking? So we'll Talk, never, talking? Not talking. Not talking? I have to say, if you have never seen them, Joan does these amazing videos for Tablet where she makes a recipe and you can get the recipe. They are so good. I should also say that Joan is, in some ways, I don't know if this is your official title, but you're, you're the, the Jewish food consultant to the White House, yes? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. So the question I have is, 
How many presidents have you, cons- how many White House administrations have you consulted on Jewish food with? Well, I'm just the Obama administration. I've been to the White House lots. Okay. Who is our most Jewish president in your time going to the White House? Oh, man. <laughs> and you can interpret that however actually, you want. Actually, probably Clinton. And, so why do you say that? He liked to eat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Obama's fighting off the hunger pangs with cigarettes and Clinton's and, just chowing down. Is and that- I know Hillary had my cookbook, Jewish Cooking in America, for sure. Because she told me at a PTA meeting at our kids' school. Oh. <laughs> for those of you still considering who to vote for, this is one uh, data point in that discussion. <laughs> that's it, that's so when you started in food writing, yes. was it, did you start as a, someone who specialized in Jewish cuisine? No. I lived, I was very young, I was about 26, I was living in Jerusalem, working for Teddy Kollek, who probably most of you have never heard of, but he was the mayor of Jerusalem for many, many years, and he loved to eat. So I was his foreign press attaché, and I would go with him to eat at all the different communities. Wait, so you weren't a food writer yet, you were Teddy Kollek's foreign press attaché. I was, I, I barely knew how to cook, so I, I realized that by eating with people, you broke down a lot of barriers and that it opened doors for you. And of course, Teddy loved to eat, but he would take, <laughs> he would reach over to other people. You know, Jewish people like to share food. And he would, I remember once we went out for lunch with Scotty Reston from the New York Times, and he, Scotty Reston wasn't eating something, so Teddy just reached out. <laughs> but he liked to eat. And I, but I realized the power of food. Really, Joan, you've done a lot in uh, about cuisines of different Jewish communities, not just you know Ashkenazi Jews, but Jews really sort of all over the Middle East and um, and Europe. What is the most surprise? Like, what is the Jewish cuisine you wish people knew more about and wish people you know got really into? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I'm I'm doing a book right now called King Solomon's Table, and it's sort of the roots and roots of Jewish food. And I've been interviewing all these people from all over the world, and I realized that I have a lot of Libyan recipes. Now, we know that there are no longer any Libyan Jews, certainly living in Libya, but there are very few Libyan Jews, and it's going to all die. And they're fabulous, fabulous recipes. Um, Joan's recipe for a Yemenite chicken soup oh, I love that is recipe. one of the single three greatest things I've ever had in my entire life. Ooh, it requires like mortar and pestle. Sorry. Like this is how hardcore this thing is. Like I'm know, sitting on the floor, like crushing things. Like it does an not old say Yemenite you have to villager. It is fantastic. Actually, I have a version of that in this new book because that was one of the really great experiences of my life. When I was young, very young, and I was living in Jerusalem, um, I knew this jeweler who was Yemenite, Sadok. You've probably all seen the Sadok that have been to Jerusalem on King David Street. And the old rabbi, he was 106 at the time, they invited me to um, break the fast, no, the, the meal before the fast at their home, and they showed me subsequently how to use the recipes. And there's a, actually a, a wonderful restaurant in New York, a tiny hole in the wall. I think it's on, it's either 80th and 81st between West End and Broadway, or Broadway and Amsterdam. It's a Yemenite restaurant that has the same soup. It's really good. All right, so talking about restaurants today, I, I have to ask this. This is a very crass question, but have you ever had a Big Mac? 
Oh, of course. Uh, when I go when was the last I time? Drive. And the follow-up question. When was the last time you had a Big Mac? Oh, actually, a, a while ago. A few <laughs> years ago. But whenever I go, I drive to Martha's Vineyard where we have a house. So I drive from here, and I like to drive alone so I can listen to a book on tape. And then I stop, and I always think, now, which junk food should I have? I loved... Big Macs are good, and so are Mac, McDonald's potatoes when they're really warm. So what's the answer? what we call French fries? Yeah. And I always, and I love peanut M&Ms for movies. That I do like. Uh, Joe Nathan, <laughs> thank you so much for Yeah. <laughs> Now is time for our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week. We'd like to welcome up to the stage Elizabeth Stokes Brunig. Um, Liz is a PhD candidate in religious studies. I dropped out. You dropped out. Is oh, an yeah. ex-PhD candidate you. in religious studies at Brown University and a staff writer at the New Republic, where she writes about everything, but often about Catholicism, religious ethics, and justice. She is a true Gentile, having been born in one Gentile tradition and converted to another. You were Methodist growing up? Yeah. That's right. Yep. And she, and she made the switch to, she went old school. She's a Roman Catholic so now. Double Gentile. Double Gentile. <laughs> uh, she's a convert to Catholicism who went to Brandeis University, where she met some Jews. And... <laughs> <laughs> where she became the school's first Marshall Scholar since Thomas Friedman. Is that true? That's true. I think that's in your bio. That's true. It's that's in true. there. It's in your bio. So um, thank you for being here, first of all. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. Um, first question. Why did you convert to Catholicism? It actually had a lot to do with going to Brandeis and minoring in Jewish studies. <laughs> Tell us more. Tell us more. <laughs> I have to say, before you answer, I'm sorry, this feels to me like some kind of nerdy, Jewy reverse inquisition. <laughs> like, why did you convert to Catholicism? <laughs> with many fine traditions to choose from, why did you choose Catholicism? So Brandeis used to have this great program called the First Year Seminar, and it, all the first years had to take them. And they got rid of it at some point. But I decided to still do it. I don't know why. Um, and so the one that I enrolled in was basically a Western canon class. And it was taught by a rabbi. Uh, and I realized all this literally the day I show up. So this guy is Rabbi Kimmelman. He's a very smart guy. Somebody here knows Rabbi Kimmelman. Who knows Rabbi Kimmelman? Reuven Kimmelman. Oh, yeah, there we go. We saw it. It's a very small Jewish world. She knows Rabbi Kimmelman. <laughs> So the, we re, were reading books of the Bible. We ended up reading Genesis, Exodus, and Matthew. Uh, and at this point, having been born and raised in Texas as a Methodist and having like, been periodically sent to vacation Bible school at like, my evangelical cousin's church, um, I realized that I've been... I'm going to start telling my kids when they misbehave. <laughs> Do you realize that evangelicals on school vacation <laughs> send their kids to Bible school? <laughs> so why don't you shape the fuck up, kid? <laughs> <laughs> I realize I have this crisis where I'm like, I've been, I've been reading the Bible in an enormously stupid way. Um, it, almost designed to get the least out of it humanly possible. Which leads to me asking a lot of really stupid questions in class. I think I asked at one point, what if you do have a literal reading of the Bible? And Rabbi Kilman said, if my grandmother was a truck, I'd have wheels. What if? <laughs> what are these what if? <laughs> Rabbi Kimmelman would say that. <laughs> so, right. Such a Rabbi Kimmelman. Totally <laughs> this was crushing to me. 
Um, and uh, so I, I wind up in the library. I'm having like a sort of a nervous breakdown. It's my first year. I'm in Massachusetts. My parents live in Texas. I can't even really explain to them what is happening to me. I'm not losing my faith. I'm just becoming progressively aware that it is uh, under-informed. I start reading Augustine. Now, that's the leap I can't explain, <laughs> is how I go from reading, you know, sort of a lot of Jewish exegesis texts, like Fishbane, to reading Augustine. But that is where I was like, this guy is actually reading the Bible in a sensible way, with an eye for uh, analogy and intertextuality and all of the things that I hadn't realized had been kind of stripped out. So over the next four years, I read Augustine all the time, and, and then finally run away to England, and that's where I converted, where my parents couldn't get to me. <laughs> <laughs> have, they, have they dealt? I mean, Yeah, I told them. Uh, they, they came to England to visit me, and I was like, i got to be up front with you guys. Hold on. So how, how, did, how, did they, how did they react to that? Well, I mean, immediately my mom's like, are you going to use birth control? And I was like, whoa! <laughs> She's like, that's just something you have to think about. You know, because... Do you think you would have been less upset if you said you're converting to Judaism? Would that have been less of a... I think that's actually what they suspected. It's interesting that your parents thought of the birth control thing because for a lot of non-Catholics, that is, that is the doorstop, right? They, they, right. they Catholics, they, in theory, they still object to birth control even though in practice 95% of them or so, depending on the polls, practice birth control. Um, are you one of the liberal Catholics who thinks maybe Francis will come around on this? I'm not sure. I don't think Francis is going to pick that fight. I think it's such a contentious fight, and I think that it's on its face, the birth control debate, it seems kind of obnoxious to a lot of people, but the stakes are very high because of the thread you unpick when you pull it. So I think he's going to leave that alone. Uh, as for me, I, was, you know, I got married as soon as I got back from Cambridge and married my high school sweetheart. The, is he a Catholic? Did he become a Catholic with you? No, see, this thing, Matt's like straight up Bolshevik, right? I mean, he's... Uh, he's got none of it. Totally. I mean, I, his parents were not religious at all. They think the concept's kind of foreign to him. And, uh, are you... Are you are, do you struggle about his soul? Do you worry about it? I mean, I, you know, it's going to be a long process to convert him if that's... You know, <laughs> <laughs> You've got time. You're married now. You're fine. And of course, Catholics don't have divorce, so, you know... Right, so he's in he it for the long haul. He can try leaving you, but you're not leaving him. Right, so we get married. I, I convince my mom, like, you don't need to worry about the birth control. So she's got all this stuff. She's like, you know, my your Nana always used to say the rich get richer and the poor have children. And you're just going to have 10, 20 kids and you're going to be poor. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to be poor for reasons totally unrelated right. um, to the amount of children I have. Of course, we get married, and a year later, I am now pregnant. Well, mazel tov. So that's how it went. Yeah, Thank you. all right. Yes. Yeah. So, before you got to Brandeis, had you interacted with a lot of Jews, like, in high school and stuff? Or did you, and did you know what you were sort of walking into? So, um, uh, both my parents had a tough time getting through college. They went to college in Arlington, Texas, where they were also high school sweethearts. And, um, you know, the college world was small to them. So they recommended I talk to people that I thought were successful. So I picked, like, the most successful woman that I knew of. It was my dad's boss. She was Jewish. I had no idea. Again, this question of whether people were Jewish or not did not enter into my mind yet at this point in my life because there were two Jewish people, as far as I know, at my 4,000-person high school. <laughs> so I, I scheduled an interview with her. She's very smart. She's like, I got into every college I applied to, and I picked Brandeis, and you should too. I didn't probe this. <laughs> I was like, okay. 
I toured, I interviewed, and uh, and it was my it was the one I really 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 liked. I really liked it better than any other place I visited, and I loved it. I had a great time at Brandeis. A fantastic school. You had some questions for us because you have a panel of Jewish experts here, and um, one of them, as I recall, it was kind of you to send them ahead, was about a certain presidential candidate. What yes. Was, what was that that you wanted us to answer for you? So I really haven't heard, I haven't seen like attention given to the fact that you know we actually have a, a Jewish person in the running for the presidency, and it's it's Bernie Sanders. So. So what do you think? Why do you think he's played it down because, because of that? Because not wanting to face that? Or do you think he's just not really religious? Or what, what's going on with Bernie there? I think Bernie Sanders' Jewishness like, actually hasn't been as much of a thing as you would expect, considering how far along we're getting. My hunch is that Jewish Democrats instinctively veer towards Hillary. And so there's less, uh, there's less of them saying, wait, we have this Jewish candidate also. That's but- my completely speculative theory. Based on, like, my parents. <laughs> Hi, Mom. The deep, deep sample size of Great Neck Butniks yes. is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, hey, everybody, we have a Jewish candidate for president. Yay, it's Bernie Sanders. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh no. You know, I, I, as, 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 as far politically as I am from Bernie Sanders, is about as far politically you could be from any living human being, uh, I do really love the fact that there's a guy named Bernie uh, <laughs> who sounds just like Ali Sanders, uh, you know, running for president. It, it's so entertaining. Who is your horse in this, in this race as a social justice opinion writing, grad school dropout, pregnant Catholic woman? <laughs> By the way, you, that should probably be at least your Twitter, Twitter bio going yeah. forward. At least. Uh, I, mean, I like Bernie, I have to admit. I, I like Bernie. It's the Brandeis um, in you. It is. I, I, I also enjoy being tremendously disappointed by politics. So I've set myself up here with well, the, the perfect Democratic candidate. Party should be perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <for> right. <laughs> Don't go anywhere, but we'd like to thank our Gentile guest, Liz Brunig. So could you move to the next chair? And we have it, we, it wouldn't be Washington if we weren't journalists interviewing other journalists next to journalists. And so at the last minute, we got an extra special guest. You didn't know you were getting Jim Nabel, but you got Jim Nabel. You also didn't know that you were getting Adam Credo. Adam, do you want to come on up? Sure. Okay. Adam Credo is senior writer for the Washington Free Beacon. He formerly wrote for the Washington Jewish Week. And according to his own internet biography, he lives in Maryland with his comic books. Recently Virginia, but the comic books are still there. Also the cats. Oh, yes. Let's talk. Let's talk. <laughs> I could show so you, you pictures. So I'm the guy on this panel you have nothing in comic with. You can, you can talk comics with Liel and cats with Stephanie. And <laughs> we can and, just stare at each other. You Mark, and I can just stare at each other. Mark, yeah. can you just leave? <laughs> <laughs> it's getting awkward, Mark. It's getting awkward, <laughs> Uh, okay, so the reason we wanted to have you on here, Adam, well, was because Liel felt it was turning into a liberal media conspiracy. It always but does. It always is. Now, literally, as we speak, the Republicans are having a debate, and yeah. it speaks very well of the people in this room that they chose us over the Republican debate. I agree with that. So, now, are you a Republican or are you a, a nominal no, independent? No, I, I, I really am uh, kind of agnostic on that. I cover national security. I don't do much politics. But, but you're a person of the right? Sure. Would that be fair to say? What is going on with the Republicans this year? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, we're, we're, we've all been Donald Trumped, really. Uh, and I, that's 
completely carrying the debate. I got to be honest with you. I thought that Trump would have faded from the headlines and, and been just an echo by now weeks and weeks ago. I'm really incredibly surprised that he continues to not only dominate in the polls, but it doesn't seem that the media is willing to hold him accountable for anything that he says. The comments are just put out there and we write about it, uh, but there's no real question about this. That's, it's puzzling to me. Do you believe the conspiracy theory that All he's of them. secret? I know. So I'm asking that he's secretly a, a, a liberal plant who is just working to put out there the most ridiculous, stupid version of what a conservative is just to get so many people turned off. This is, this is from some somewhat credible. You, you know people who believe this? I know Leal, some people Leal, who okay. believe that. I got to be completely honest. That thought has crossed my mind because it, what a wonderful strategy that would be. Get the craziest person uh, that can parody a Republican. Get that guy up there. Have him say a lot of crazy things, completely dominate the dialogue. That would be a way, really, to ruin the Republican nomination there. You cover national security, which means that your days are filled with ever more grim and depressing news uh, from pretty much every corner of, of the world. Um, are we all going to die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, eventually we are, but is it going to yeah. be soon? Is it going to get better? Look, it's funny. I get this question from some of my editors every once in a while when they edit my articles or go, what the hell is going on in the world? This is crazy. I'm frightened. Thank you for frightening me today. That's often what I hear. Um, but look, I think historically uh, we're not as doomed as we were in any past decade. There's always been chaos and corruption and nonsense across the globe. Um, I think it's just highlighted a little bit more by a 24-hour news cycle that shoves it in your face. What's the greatest threat we're not paying attention to? Wow, um, that's a good question. Uh, one of my main beats well, is... Thank you, I, I try. Yeah, well, no, so not all of them are, but this one is... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the greatest journalist in America, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I've covered this extensively, the Iran nuclear issue. Uh, I don't think that it's been covered comprehensively enough, and I don't think in enough detail. Uh, the fact that everything in the negotiation, one, has not been uh, uh, performed yet. Iran continues to do pretty much what they want uh, despite the agreement, and the fact that the agreement hasn't even been signed. It's not actually an agreement. It's not legally binding. Uh, the Iranians essentially continue to march towards a nuclear weapon, and the issue's just not in the news. Do you agree with Trump and some other Republican candidates that there should be heightened scrutiny on Muslims who want to immigrate here? I would say that on the national security front, heightened security of everybody trying to immigrate is probably a good thing. Um, I wrote recently, uh, lawmakers are working on a bill to make part of the screening process include social media. Uh, the fact that that's already not, it's public, right? Why not look at this? I think that... Um, these kind of common sense things are probably smart to do. Shutting down immigration, though, is nonsense. I don't think it represents who America is or what we've stood for. Before we let you two nice people off the stage, we have a lightning round of political Yay. questions. So for, for Elizabeth Stokes Brunig and Adam Credo, by the way, great name. Thank you. Credo. Yeah. Yeah. All, All right. right. That's, that's <laughs> totally baller, as it's they like say. It's like a K, like a Kardashian, so it's <laughs> But that's better. even... No, even better. Even better, no, right? Yeah, that's, I, I tweet pictures of my ass all the time, so we actually have that in common, that's too. That's true. Uh, of your ass? Yeah, like the Kardashians. It's the butt thing. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. the butt. <laughs> right he, over, he lives right. in Connecticut. You know, <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
So you have uh, each, we're, we're going to ask uh, a round of very obnoxious questions. We ask that you answer by saying the first thing that comes into your mind without giving it any thought or intellectual consideration whatsoever. That always works out, out well I, in, in That's DC. why you're sitting here, yeah. Okay. Okay. If your horse is elected the next president, what job in the administration would you most like to be offered? Liz. Welfare czar. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good. They're actually going to create a new job for you. All right, Adam. Secretary of State Credo. <laughs> All right. All right. It's 2020, and you've just been elected president. Who is the first guest you're inviting to spend the night at the Lincoln bedroom? For me? Oh, you know, can I go totally rogue on this? Howard Stern, who just signed a uh, five-year uh, contract with Sirius, absolutely would have him over there. It would be a pleasure. I mean, supposing Trump was still around in 2020, that would be funny. You would host him for dinner? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'd be like, here it is, man. Here's the White House. You I kind of want to host him for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, um, finally, I have a final question for both of you, okay? This is, then we're going to let you go about your day. How soon, seriously, how soon will we have a Jewish president? Um, not very soon. I really don't think we'll see it for quite a while, if we even see it uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, I would say on the Bernie Sanders front, I disagree with all of you, an extraordinarily Jewish person. Uh, Bernie's Oval Office likely would be a deli, and he would have a corned beef sandwich in front of him. <laughs> I can see that. Okay, so hear me out. It's apocalyptic, but it could happen, and that would be somehow if Trump really does pull down the GOP nomination... And the, the main argument for Hillary over Bernie so far has been electability, right? But if Trump is the other guy, you're like, oh, fuck that. There's obviously not an electability problem. So then a bunch of people perhaps might swing to Bernie, who had otherwise been going for Hillary to run against somebody tough, like Cruz. Okay, then we get a Bernie-Trump contest. Obviously, all sane people and really freaked out people are going to vote Bernie. We get a Jewish president in 2016. Not going to wow. happen, but it could happen. That's, it. That's your optimistic vote. Wow. <laughs> the double down theory. All right. Please thank our guests. All right. So we'd like to welcome back to the stage our Jubador, Jim Nabel with a K. And he has, uh, he I took did, your suggestions earlier. I did early. my best. You what? I did my best. You did your best. All right. So I think this incorporates all the suggestions. <clears throat> my knowledge of the Israeli parliament is limited to uh, what a student of mine re recently wrote for the high school newspaper about it, which is actually a very good comprehensive article, but I read it last year. So That's more me, than you need to know. At one point, I reference a magistrate. Now, I realize that probably there's not a magistrate. As part of the, yeah, so we're going to go with that and pretend it rhymes really in a really nice way. So we're going to pretend that that's, that's a term used. <laughs> They sat down to have a parliamentary procedure They couldn't get a healthy majority B.B. and his adopted doggy Kaya Shook their heads in perfect harmony It's Kaya, not Kaim, right? Okay on the table was some kugel and some brisket Not there for to eat but for to debate B.B. said to Kaya, how are we gonna fix it? 
Hezekiah bit the nearest magistrate. See, it rhymes. I got the obnoxious Knesset debate blues. I barely know how these people got elected. But if I were sitting in Netanyahu's shoes, I'd say all you Jews, your birthright is rejected. <laughs> In walked Oppenheimer with Gefilte. He said, People, I'm your savior, come and see. And don't fight over Kugel or your brisket. Eat Gefilte fish on a Christmas tree. B.B. and Kaya turned their heads in wonder. What's that, Mark? Mark said, Shalom, Shalom. B.B. said, Do you mean Shabbat Shalom Yoga? Mark said, No, my daughters think that Christians have a tree growing out of the floor in every home. <laughs> Those obnoxious Knesset debate blues. I barely know how any of these people got elected. But if I were sitting in Netanyahu's shoes, I'd say, All you Jews, your birthright is rejected. All right, um, it's time for our Mazel Tovs of the Week. Liel, do you have a, you have a Mazel Tov this week? Yeah, Credo kind of stole my thunder, but uh, my, my Mazel Tov is uh, to, to the king of all media, uh, my dearly beloved Howard Stern, who today uh, signed a, a five-year contract with Sirius, uh, making my life and the life of a million other degenerates uh, much happier, and in his honor, Baba Booey. I have to say... Howard Stern did say the podcasts are for losers, so just gonna. <laughs> Does that make you a loser? Uh, none of us earn eighty million dollars a year. Case closed. Stephanie, your muscle. But we tub could if you keep downloading this. our podcast. That's right. Oh, my muscle. It's December fifteenth. Is to all high schoolers who are finding out about early decision acceptances from college. As a fencing recruit, didn't they let you know early? I did find out a few days early, and then everyone else who applied to Duke got like knew that I had found out, and like from my high school because there was like ten people, it was like a little awkward, but amazing. Oh, the privileges of being a fencing star. Yeah, there's there are a lot. There are a lot, <laughs> especially when you go to a school like Duke, where fencers are like pretty much the biggest athletes that that you can be. <laughs> Known for Duke fencing, <laughs> all around the country. So I have two. The first is to my littlest brother, Jonathan whose wife gave birth to their first child three or four days ago. Little... Mazel tov. So, little Isaac Thomas Oppenheimer. Mother, father, baby, and golden doodle are all doing well. <laughs> the second mazel tov is a little bit... Uh, if you could imagine something more serious and earnest than that, uh, it's to a listener of ours in a very special place. So, we were... We have not yet seen the breakdown of our iTunes statistics, but on SoundCloud, recently our, our editor, Julie Subrin, got us the... Uh, statistics 
for who listens where, the geographic distribution. And so this is SoundCloud. It's a small minority of our listeners. But this little portion of it, this little percentage or two, we had 404 in the United States, 32 in Canada, 18 in Israel. And then it went down from there. We actually had five in Egypt, two in Pakistan, two here, two there. And we had one listener in Saudi Arabia, a country where, of course, Jews aren't allowed. So we presume that the listener was, in fact, a a Saudi Arab Muslim who's just, you know, like, it's... as you may have known, if you've read the articles about it, there's actually a kind of openly gay subculture in Saudi. Uh, there are people, immigrants from different countries. They have parties. It's not so hard to get liquor. But the one person who's deeply closeted in Saudi Arabia is some poor guy who's in a closet somewhere with his headphones on listening to a Jewish podcast, which is like, <laughs> this is true sacrilege. So our, I mean, this, this will get you beheaded for sure. And our mazel tov is to that person, male, female, we don't know, whoever you are in Saudi Arabia for listening to a Jewish podcast. So, mazel tov to you. We say, My brother, we wish you a happy new year. Um, Unorthodox is edited by Julie Subrin and produced by Sarah Ivry. Our audience development is by Alyssa Goldstein. Wayne Hoffman is our executive editor. Alana Newhouse, our editor-in-chief. Super big thank yous to Sarah Salva and the Washington, D.C. JCC. You can find out more about all of their upcoming events at WashingtonDCJCC.org. It's a long URL, but the Jews are literate people. Our, our music is by Golem. Uh, our Jubador is Jim Nabel. He's at JimKnabel.com. And... Happy Festivus, everyone. 